From understanding a global economic crisis to crunching the numbers at the grocery till, she makes it easy and helps keep more money in your wallet. This is For What It's Worth with Rabina Ahmed Haq. This is For What It's Worth. I'm so glad that you are joining us today. We are going to have a great show talking about debt and Canadians feeling overwhelmed by their debt. A new survey finds 50% of us, that's every second person, is feeling overwhelmed by their debt right now. And who can blame them? Every time you turn on the television or read the newspaper or get something on your phone, it's all about recession and money problems and cost of living. And so if you've got debt that you're hanging on to and you're already struggling to make those payments, all of that messaging can make you feel even worse. So we are going to speak to someone. Uh, she's an works for an insolvency trustee company about how we can start to get our debt under control. Some practical tips besides just, you know, pay down your high interest debt and try not to spend more money. Some real tips for the real world of how we can get out of debt and feel less overwhelmed. We're also going to be speaking to Dan Kelly. He's the president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses uh, about what was in the federal budget for small businesses. Small businesses have been suffering for the last three years during the pandemic with their stop and start because of shutdowns that have really slowed down their business. They haven't been able to serve customers in their stores. They haven't been able to meet face to face. And even when they were open, they could only have 25% capacity at some point. So it's been a real struggle for small businesses. There were some tidbits in the federal budget for small businesses, uh, but is it enough? Are they going far enough uh, to help small businesses across Canada? Uh, really survive this next chapter after the pandemic, this new normal that we are now living in. Uh, customers have changed. The way that we shop has changed. Um, how is the federal government helping small businesses cope at this time when they are truly just recovering from everything they've been through in the last three years? I wanted to talk for a minute about the new tax-free first home savings account. Wow, that's a mouthful. The F. HSA. Try to remember that. Really, this account was uh, created by the federal government. It is a way for first-time homebuyers to save up to $40,000 tax-free into an account that they can then use to buy their first home. Now, there's been a lot of criticism about this FHSA, this tax-free first home savings account. Uh, one of the criticisms is, is that it doesn't really address the problem of affordability. You can put $8,000 a year into this account, up to $40,000 before you buy your first home. But young people are saying, where am I going to get $8,000 from to put into this account that you've created? Yes, it has its benefits. It's sort of a marriage between the RRSP and the TFSA. So the money you put in is like an RRSP contribution. So you get that money, the tax that you paid on that money back when you file your return. And the money that you take out is treated like a TFSA and you don't have to pay income tax on that. So that is the beauty of this tax-free first home savings account. But you have to have the money to put in. And that is one of the biggest problems is that young people, they're not necessarily struggling to find a place to put their money. They're struggling to actually find the money to put into whether it be a savings account like the one the federal government has created 
or their own TFSA or any other high interest savings account. But this is a new account that became available as of April 3rd. Mm -hmm. You can open one up at your financial institution, just like you would your TFSA or your RRSP, or if you have kids, your RESP. It's a registered account. And so you will be able to keep tabs on how much money you have put in. You can put in up to $40,000 with a maximum of $8,000 a year. Uh, there is a cap on the age, 40. You cannot open this account after the age of 40, and you have to be at least 18 years old. So between 18 and 40, and the money has to go towards your first home purchase. So there are some caveats. It's not like you can just open this account if you're buying a second or third property, or if you're buying a rental property, or if you just want to make some money tax-free, it's not going to work. You really do have to fall into that very specific category. It is available right now. I think it, it's a good thing that the government is recognizing that Canadians, especially young Canadians, need more places and more options when it comes to saving for their first home. But this one, I think, does miss the mark in understanding the biggest problem, which is affordability. So it's not about not having a place to save the money. It's about not having the money to begin with. Uh, we have a great show coming up. We're going to be talking a lot about debt and debt relief. We're also going to be talking about what was in the federal budget for small and medium-sized businesses. The federal government wants to reduce credit card transaction fees. When you go and charge your credit card um, at a store, they pay a transaction fee to the credit card company. And we in Canada pay some of the highest transaction fees. The retailer does. And so the federal government wants that to change because it really does hurt the bottom line, especially of small businesses who are not able to, in the same way big corporations can, uh, buy bulk transactions and really bring down their overall cost of um, having customers use credit cards in their store. They just simply don't have that kind of capital and they don't even have uh, that kind of revenue to really justify uh, what big department stores can do, which is buy bulk transactions and it brings that whole cost down. We're going to have that and more. I'm Rabina Ahmed Huck and this is For What It's Worth. <laughs> You're listening to For What It's Worth with Rabina ahmed Hawk. A new report shows almost half of Canadian workers are feeling overwhelmed by their debt. It was conducted by TELUS Health. It's their financial well-being report, and it shows more than ever, we're just feeling really uncertain about our financial future. If this is something that you're feeling, my next guest is here to help you out with some practical tips to manage that debt and to stop feeling so overwhelmed by it. Taz Rajan is a community engagement partner at Bromwich and Smith, a licensed insolvency trustee, and she joins me now. Welcome to the program, Taz. Thank you so much for having me, Ruby. So the first thing I wanted to ask you is just your reaction to this TELUS Health report that says one out of two of us, so basically half of us, are feeling overwhelmed by the amount of debt that we're carrying. Yeah, well, I don't think it should be surprising to anyone. I mean, you look at inflation, you know, in June, inflation peaked at 8.1%, which is literally the highest we've seen inflation since the 80s. And I, I don't know about you or some of your listeners, but I remember my dad telling me stories about, you know, in the 80s, people were selling their home for a dollar. So, 
of course, half of us are feeling that overwhelm and that stress. You think about over COVID, many of us were not working, didn't have work, didn't have income maybe coming in for our businesses, but we were just holding on. I think that's what a lot of us Canadians did. We were just sort of like barely holding on by our nails and just we're so optimistic and we think that things are going to get better. But as we start to come out, you know, we're starting to see creditors take action now. We're seeing CRA take action, you know, on anyone who took CERB payments or some of those other things. Obviously, at Bromwich and Smith, we've really seen, you know, insolvencies rise right across Canada. Actually, it's not necessarily even province specific. So, you know, it, it is a little bit of the sign of the times. I, I want to say, though, these these financial cycles are just that they're cycles. This too shall pass. But, you know, it's not surprising. And if if you're someone listening today that's starting to feel overwhelmed, like I hope there's a little bit of solace there going, hey, one in two other people are feeling this way. I, I'm not alone. So let's get into it. If someone is feeling like, okay, I am one of those people. I feel overwhelmed. I'm not sleeping well at night because all I can think about is the credit card bill is due. The property taxes are due. I still owe money to someone I borrowed from to pay my last month's bill. And that can create a lot of anxiety that spills over into our work, into our relationships. What's step one if you're feeling that way? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it, it really does like finances and emotions, um, our mental and physical health are completely tied. So step number one is just to acknowledge it within yourself, even just to sort of stop and go, whoa, what's this pit in my stomach? Or, you know, what is this feeling that I'm having? And just even to acknowledge it is step number one. Um, step number two, and, you know, again, we know statistically, most Canadians don't actually do or have a budget or like really work through any sort of a budgeting app, but really, truly a budget to me, that's your ticket to freedom. Having a budget is just knowing how much money is coming in each month, how much money is going out each month. And for me, it's a very empowering tool. Just see it as a tool and nothing else. It's a tool to see it it sometimes from, you know, it'll help with that anxiety because sometimes anxiety is just all these thoughts we have in our mind, we haven't gotten anything down on paper. And a lot of those fears we have, or a lot of that anxiety is not based on fact. So when you actually have a budget, you've written down, this was my paycheck, this was rent, this was groceries, you know, whatever that was, it's fact based now. And that alone can relieve a lot of that stress or pressure as well. If when you do that budget and you're seeing that more money is going out than coming in and you're starting to feel overwhelmed, you know, take that step of having a conversation with a professional and we can look at all sorts of different things, right? There's not just reducing the money going out. There's also ways to increase the money coming in. There's ways to look at, you know, dealing with that debt and maybe getting it um, taken care of. And then Step number three is just acknowledging that you are not alone and it is not the end of, you know, your financial life. You can and will be able to thrive again after you deal with that overwhelming debt that you're feeling. And you speak from experience because you've been through this whole situation and you are now Mm -hmm. doing much better working now to help others with their finances. Talk to me a little bit about, um, your experience with debt and that feeling of just being overwhelmed by it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've been in the finance industry most of my adult life and 
Of course, you know, you think about when you're a child and you play bankruptcy, I mean, you play Monopoly, as soon as you hit bankruptcy, it's like game over, right? So obviously, having been in finance, this, this idea of being overwhelmed by debt and, you know, insolvency has always been this really big no-no, a very taboo. Um, but I was working 100% commission position, living off of my savings and waiting for, you know, the pay to come in. You know, I didn't have any benefits and I was rear-ended. And that's, you know, we we see quite often in the work that we do is it's these external factors like an accident, you know, job loss, some sort of critical illness or disability or divorce or death of a spouse. These are these external triggers that can really take us from, you know, juggling our debt to feeling completely overwhelmed by our debt. So I I had a really bad concussion. I could barely sit up. I could not work. There was no income coming in, but the bills continue. And for me, I had a very large Canada revenue debt that was not going away and the interest was just piling up. And so, yeah, did I ever feel a alone? I really, truly in that moment, I felt like nobody else does this, which logically makes no sense, right? There would not be options for debt if nobody else ever struggled with it. But in that moment, I did feel like, you know, I'm the failure. I'm a loser. Nobody else is going through this. You know, how could I make such a huge mistake? How could I be in such a terrible position? And I mean, honestly, it was not necessarily through my own fault, but we do feel that. And there's so much stigma and shame around it. We don't tend to talk about it with other people. Of course, now I always talk about it. And you would be so surprised at how many people I talk to that are like, oh, I did bankruptcy too, or I went through a consumer proposal too. And we're all thriving today. You know, I have the highest credit score I've ever had in my life because I dealt with the problem. I dealt with the issue and, you know, have learned and grown since that. And it's such mm-hmm. a passion project for me to be able to help other people do the same. Because we often talk anecdotally, you know, we're saving for that emergency, that leaky roof or job loss, yeah. but you live through it and you know exactly what that can do very quickly uh, to your finances and how much debt can pile up and then it can exacerbate other things that may be happening um, in, in your mm. life and just make those things worse. Um, a, a lot of debt comes from lifestyle choices. So things that mm-hmm. we decide, the car we decide to buy, where we want to live. Uh, what can we do right. when it comes to our lifestyle? What changes can we make that don't feel like we're depriving ourselves of something, but can really save a lot of money for a person who's trying to get out of debt? Yeah, uh, definitely. I am definitely not a joy kill and I'm not a proponent of, you know, some of the other kind of gurus that are out there that that say give up everything and, and live on nothing. Give up your and... coffee, live, <laughs> give live up your in coffee. a tent. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Never go shopping. It's just, it's not sustainable and it's not realistic. And this is where, honestly, I, I know it's, I sound like a bit of a broken record, I know, but I'm going back to the budget because you look at your budget and you determine. I have a friend who, you know, when he was asked, how much do you spend at Starbucks? He's got two girls. They were in all these different activities. He's like, I think 75 bucks a month. Goes and does his budget. And it's actually $400 a month. This was kind of their in between school and activity. This is where they would eat basically. And realizing that does not necessarily mean no more Starbucks. It means, hey, you need to adjust your budget. You're actually spending $400. At, and I mean, I'm just using one example. It could be at any store. Um, but now just adjust your budget. If if that's a non-negotiable, listen, making meals at home, we don't have time for that. We're going to be doing this. 
okay, now you've got to adjust something else. So I think it's really, it's very individual, very personalized. Look at your budget as this living document and figure out what are your values? What are the non-negotiables? And then where are the areas that you can make some adjustments, right? And if cutting back is not an option, you've got to look at ways of increasing income. And the other thing I want to say is, you know, a lot of people are like one or the other. You can be paying off debt and getting in a better financial situation while you are saving for that emergency, while you are saving for your retirement or your your mortgage or whatever that may be. You know, doing both at the same time, I think, is really going to create that momentum and it gives you something to look forward to as well so that when you take away maybe whatever, driving your car three times a week, you've got your eye on the prize and you're like, I know that I get to buy that gorgeous purse at the end of three months because I gave up my car for three days. (laughs) And you've mentioned a couple of times, uh, Taz, increasing income. That seems like a lofty idea. You know, oh, I'll I'll just make more money. But for so many people, we don't have the time, we don't have the resources, and we just don't have uh, we just don't know how even to make that happen. Talk, how, how can someone increase their 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 income if say they're a full time salaried employee and they've got kids and other things happening in their life where they just don't have the time to do it? Yeah, I think honestly, we're living in the best age and time for that. We have, you know, Facebook Marketplace, Craigslist, all of those kinds of places. So springtime is a great time to maybe declutter your household and even sell a few things on Marketplace or some of these other areas. Um, You can get the kids involved as well. A lot of them are on spring break or they'll be on um, summer break. So even getting the kids involved in, you know, are they artsy? Can they sell something or can they babysit or, you know, can they sell their old, you know, sporting equipment? So that's one way for sure. So many side gigs and side hustle and, you know, business opportunities out there. My one caution on that is you've got to go in eyes wide open. You've got to make sure that it's legitimate um, and that, you know, you are going to be on the upside of things. Uh, You know, a lot of people do come to us because they started a side hustle and it actually put them upside down. But I think there's a lot of different ways you can look at cash back options as well. So, you know, there's different apps for that. There's different banking opportunities. There's like switching your shopping to places where you're getting the cash back. Um, and, And honestly, increasing income is 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 one side of that balance sheet. So, I mean, we do need to also reduce some of those budgetary items that maybe, you know, aren't moving us closer to our goals as well. Taz, it's been so great talking to you. I know that I got a lot out of this conversation. I know our listeners will as well. Uh, just knowing that there is hope when you are feeling overwhelmed and you are a living, breathing example of that, of someone who's been through it and is doing well on the other side. So I think that's really inspiring to hear. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. Taz Rajan is a community engagement partner at Bromwich and Smith. It's a licensed insolvency trustee. Uh, When we come back, we're going to talk about the federal budget and what was in it for small businesses. I'm Rabina Ahmad Haq, and this is For What It's Worth. You're listening to For What It's Worth with Rabina Ahmed Hawk. The 2023 federal budget promises to reduce credit card transaction costs for Canadian businesses. These can be really high, up to 4%, depending on the kind of card a customer chooses to use. And for years, 
business owners have been saying this takes a big chunk out of our profits, a point that was only made worse by the pandemic as more and more Canadians started shopping using their credit card, whether it be online purchases or just wanting to be contactless because now you know we can just tap or use Google Pay and not have to even touch the machine uh, when we are making a purchase. So as we start to recover, do the details in the budget go far enough to help small businesses succeed? For more on this, we are joined by Dan Kelly, the president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Businesses. The CFIB advocates for small businesses with politicians and decision makers. Welcome to the program, Dan. Good to be with you, Rubina. I mentioned there uh, that the transaction fees can be up to 4%. What exactly is the merchant paying for when they have to pay this transaction fee to the credit card company? Well, look, it's a great question. I think a lot of consumers, they know about the fees that they pay directly. That might be an annual fee to get a card that gives them some points, or it could be the interest that they pay when they run a balance and they haven't paid off their card that month. But many people don't know that every time their card is used in that store, every time they enter their, their PIN number, the merchant pays a percentage of that sale to the credit card companies and in primarily to the banks uh, for the courtesy of using that card. So if it's a CIBC Visa card, CIBC actually gets a, the largest chunk of the revenue. That's the number that you talked about ranging up to 4%. Uh, for many, though, for regular visas and MasterCards, it might be somewhere in the one and a half to two and a half percent of the sale range. And that money, that I mean, it sounds like a small percentage, but it sure adds up. And for small merchants, it is killing them. That might mean the, mean the difference between whether they can earn a, an, an income to, to support themselves and their family or not. Yeah, and we know that many small businesses, they have very slim margins to begin with. So if you run a small grocery store, for example, you're, you don't have uh, huge markups where you can justify these, these uh, cards being used. Oftentimes in small businesses, they will discourage you from using a credit card and say, you know, unless you're spending X amount, we don't want you to use it. Or, or they'll even say, if you pay by cash, I can give you a receipt, but I'll take 3% off because I don't have to pay that fee then to the, uh, the credit card a company for the transaction. Um, the budget addresses ways that they say they can tackle high credit card fees. Can you tell us what they're proposing? Yeah, so the, the we've been pushing the federal government for some time, uh, small businesses have, and we at CFIB have. Uh, and the government has, uh, for a couple of years now in the budget, talked about uh, a potential reduction in credit card processing fees for small business. The most detail we've received, and it's still not a lot, but in the 2023 budget, they say that they're going to lower, they've reached an agreement with Visa and MasterCard to lower the fees specifically for small businesses by up to 27%. So that's a pretty significant savings over what a merchant might be paying right now. Uh, and it's good news. We don't have details on exactly how it's going to work, but uh, in the weeks ahead, we're expected to learn more. Uh, but any reduction right now would sure be helpful as small firms are, are struggling. They, they haven't put all of the pandemic damage behind them. They're deeply in debt because they had to borrow money to get through the past three years. Sales haven't materialized. They haven't bounced back to kind of normal levels. So this would be a fantastic help if, if one of these costs, like credit card processing fees, can start to come down. Uh, tell me a little bit about how um, credit card processing fees, uh, big department stores or big corporations are able to buy 
them in bulk so they can actually reduce uh, the transaction fee per customer as opposed to a small business that just may not have the capacity to do that. Is that I've, I've been reading more about that and I wanted to first understand whether that is actually a thing and if, if that really does, uh, again, create a roadblock for small businesses. It sure does. Look, uh, large firms, as is normal, can negotiate lower prices than a small firm can. That's certainly true when they're buying goods. Their volume allows them to get uh, a lower price than a small business that only buys uh, you know, a handful of items at a time. Uh, but in this world, even the large firms are struggling to try to get some, uh, some room to negotiate. Uh, if you're really, really big, you can. Costco, for example, they've switched the credit card accepted at Costco from time to time to try to uh, get the lowest possible uh, uh, fee from, from the credit card companies and the banks. Uh, the, other, the other one, uh, the other example that comes to mind is for Visa. If you're if you are a single merchant and you process more than two billion dollars a year, you can get a lower price. But if you're less than two billion dollars, you can't. Um, and for small merchants, that you know they they have a hard enough time as it is. Uh, if we can get those fees down for small firms, that will really help. And and in, and specifically, if we can get small firms to get lower fees for online transactions that will encourage more of them to be able to offer uh, their goods and services online. Uh, and and sure, you know, surely that would be a good thing for all of us if, if more merchants are participating in the digital economy. Uh, the, the federal budget, uh, I'm sure now you've had time to digest it and uh, really look at what, what's in it for small businesses. Do you think it addresses what needs to be addressed uh, considering what so many small businesses have been through in the last three years? Many of them have been had to shut their doors forever. Uh, does it go far enough to support uh, what we often call the backbone of Canada's economy? It doesn't, no. I mean, look, this is a helpful start. It is good. It is very good news that the federal government has started to address credit card processing fees. Um, so we're wel we welcome that. There were a couple of other positive measures in the budget. Uh, they put in place a new system for a business to sell shares of itself to its employees that, that we think has some pro some potential. But there's there's a lot of bad news too. I mean, there have there have been no breaks uh, for in some of the key tax rates that small businesses are facing. EI premiums uh, and CPP premiums went up on January 1st of this year. Carbon taxes just went up on April the 1st. Uh, we had liquor taxes, a small win there that they, they were supposed to rise by 6.9% and they, they only put them up by two. But the, 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 the thing that I'm struck with is some of the things that didn't happen. One of the things that our, mem our members, small businesses really needed was a break in repaying some of the loans that they had to take out to survive COVID. The federal government issued a really helpful program, the Canada Emergency Business Account, so most small businesses in the country took out either a forty or sixty thousand dollar government backed loan. They're due at the end of twenty twenty three. We asked the federal government for more time to repay these loans. We're still pushing it, but it hasn't happened yet. Yeah, because most businesses are reporting that they do not have the same revenue. They've not caught up to what they were before the pandemic. The post COVID, they they are not anywhere close to where uh, what what they were doing uh, when it comes to profits uh, before the pandemic. So how can they come up with that extra money uh, to to pay uh, to pay those bills? That's one of the challenges 
I'm sure uh, many small businesses are facing, but what are some of the other biggest challenges that you see for small and medium-sized businesses uh, in Canada for 2023? Oh gosh, there's a huge number of them. You know, the, the biggest ones right now is, is how businesses are going to deal with the incredible cost increases that they are facing. We know as consumers that we're facing large uh, cost increases, you know, on groceries and, and on really everything that we buy. A business is even more concerning. Uh, for one thing, labor costs have risen dramatically over the last couple of years to, to either recruit staff or hang on to staff. Businesses have had to dig deep. Uh, the costs of a whole bunch of taxes, as we just discussed, have gone up. Insurance premiums, fuel costs, the list, uh, uh, the list goes on. So some relief would certainly be of help. A more time to repay some of the COVID-related debt, that would be of help. The other big file that we need to address is the shortage of labor. Uh, businesses are really struggling to find people to, to keep their doors open. Um, and, and, and while the federal government has helped on the immigration policy side, uh, we, need, we need more assistance for businesses. We, Canada needs more people uh, in order to get the job done. And, uh, and businesses are struggling to find them. This has been an extraordinary uh, three years for you, Dan. I know that we've spoken many times over the last while uh, about how businesses have been doing during the pandemic. Um, g g give me a um, sort of uh, your review of how small businesses were treated over the last three years. Uh, you mentioned some programs that you liked, you mentioned some things that you didn't like, but if you were to look at it um, from your lens, um, did, did were small business a priority to the, the to the government uh, during the last three years uh, to to really make sure that they succeeded and, and came out um, came out on top after the pandemic ends? You know, it, it, you're you're quite right to ask. I mean, businesses have put been put through hell over the course of the last three years. You know, at the start of the pandemic, you know, when lockdowns were were popping up all over the country, business owners knew that it was harming their businesses, but they generally recognized that, that governments were dealing with something brand new. Nobody quite knew what we were dealing with. Um, and so people understood that, that, that we needed to be cautious and, that the, and some rules needed to be in place until we could figure this all out. But that drifted on forever. I mean, and, and the part where I think small businesses kind of lost it with governments is that there were all sorts of nonsensical policies. Remember in, in Ontario and several provinces across the country, you know, Costco and Walmart were allowed to remain open to sell whatever they'd like while the small merchant was forced to close their doors. Uh, you know, big lineups of people were allowed in some places and yet the ladies clothing store that is lucky to have 10 customers in an entire day was, was fully locked down. Uh, gyms and restaurants in the city of Toronto, for example, were closed for over 430 days, shut down for 430 days, longer than what we've been able to find anywhere else in the world. Mm -hmm. And so that's when small businesses really start stopped becoming patient with their government. And there was and, the, and there began to be a, a pushback because the policies that may have made sense at the start of the pandemic when when things were really uncertain stopped making sense at a certain point, but governments just kept going. And on the support programs, yes, there were some helpful programs, the wage subsidy, rent subsidy, uh, the SIBA loan program, and some provincial grant programs. But even if a business used all of those programs, it covered about a third of the overall losses that they took on over the COVID period. And, and so for them, 
for many of them, they're still deeply in debt, not because they made any mistakes, but because they were forced to shut their doors or be restricted. And, and that bill is on their shoulders, not on anyone else's. And, and that doesn't seem right. Yeah, I remember seeing a really vi a viral TikTok video, viral for Toronto probably because it was of a mall in Toronto and it was a small business owner and he went in there and he put in a song that sort of showed his frustration as to why are these stores allowed to be open whereas I'm not allowed to open because I happen to have a storefront on a street. Uh, but the mall is open and all these stores are open, you know, all these big corporations are allowed yeah. to make money. Uh, whereas I can't when I can easily control, you know, two or three people coming in at a time and the mall is just packed. Yes, we're, you're wearing masks, but um, no one's social distancing no, and all the stores are packed. It, it did seem like. Um, right. Look, I mean, COVID was spreading in the Amazon warehouse, but we were pushing everyone online. And yes. and and yet the, the tiny little store that, sell, that was even making us, you know, we, we had a business that was fined. Uh, because they sold out outside, they sold the plant to somebody outside the store in the middle of winter, and they were given a fine. And yet, you know, COVID was spreading like wildfire in the Amazon warehouse. I mean, the policies really didn't make sense at the beginning. People were understanding because governments couldn't get it right on day one, but after hundreds and hundreds of days, that's when people started to lose their patience, and I, I can understand why. Yeah, and and every small business is a family. Uh, when you when you those businesses shut down, you're affecting a family because it's a family run business, and they're not making any income. So there is a uh, economic effect that's not just you know that store is closed and they're not making money. That family is not able to pay their bills and and uh, do things that they need to do with their their money as well. And so they're going into debt just to just to make ends meet. Dan, thank you so much for joining us today, getting us, uh, giving us your take on the federal budget and what it does for small and medium-sized businesses. Uh, I really appreciate your time. Anytime at all. That's Dan Kelly. He's the president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Businesses. Uh, they advocate for small businesses with politicians and decision makers. We are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I'm going to tell you about the most affordable cities for first-time home buyers in Canada. I'm Rubina Ahmed Huck, and this is for what it's worth. From understanding a global economic crisis to crunching the numbers at the grocery till, you're listening to For What It's Worth with Rubina Ahmed Huck. That brings us to the end of For What It's Worth. Thank you so much for everyone that tuned in for this hour and listened to our conversations with our expert guests. I got a lot out of both of those conversations. Uh, speaking to Taz Rajan, uh, who works for a licensed insolvency trustee company, about how anyone who's feeling overwhelmed by their debt can start to get the help they need. She says the number one issue is that those who are in debt don't actually seek expert help. They don't reach out to a financial planner or an insolvency trustee just to find out their options. It doesn't mean you have to claim bankruptcy or file a consumer proposal, which does have an impact on your credit score, especially filing bankruptcy. It will plummet your credit score to the lowest it possibly can be. And that score is not going to come up until you build up your credit history. So it's not a decision that you should make lightly. But 
talking to an expert about the options that are available, debt consolidation, a consumer proposal, which means there is a mediator that will work with your creditors to find uh, a way for you to pay your debts down. Maybe they can come to some agreement for you to pay half of that money down. Whatever it is that they work out, it will get you at least in the good books, uh, so to speak, get that debt paid down and not have the collectors after you and all of those calls that um, everybody dreads if they are in debt. So she had some really great tips and lifestyle, really thinking about where you live, what kind of car you drive, what things do you buy on an ongoing basis? She used that example of a person she worked with who didn't realize they were spending upwards of $500 a month on Starbucks. Because you think every time you go in, it's five bucks here, six bucks there, but it really does add up when you look at it as a monthly spend. So not that you have to cut that out. I am definitely not a fan of saying cut out your latte and become a billionaire. I don't think that that is uh, something that most people want to do. Most people want to find ways to afford the latte so that they can enjoy it on a daily basis, but you don't have to have it as often. Maybe once a day, or maybe just when you're out with your friends, or maybe uh, on the weekend, find ways that you can really enjoy whatever it is that you enjoy doing um, and cut back on it on, on days where it's not really making a difference to you. I know so many times I've bought coffee or tea and I've left it on my desk and then it got cold and I just threw it out. That's a total waste of money. So now what I try to do is if I'm going to buy a fancy coffee, I make time to sit down and drink it right away so I can enjoy a hot coffee in a nice environment with great, you know, soothing music, cafe music playing in the background. So I really get the most value out of that purchase. Also speaking to Dan Kelly, he's the president of the CFIB, the Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses, about what was in the budget for small and medium-sized businesses. And he does applaud the government for addressing credit card processing fees or credit card transaction fees. So this is the fee the merchant pays when you make a purchase with your credit card to the credit card company. And those can be really high, up to 4% in some cases. And so what small businesses are saying is that in uh, Canada, we pay the highest transaction fees in the world. And the government should do something about bringing those costs down. We don't have the same volume here in Canada as they would in the United States or Europe. And so credit card companies aren't giving merchants the same deal because there isn't as much uh, revenue coming in. Now, that's not the case for big corporations. He used that example of Costco. Well, they'll often switch to another credit card because they'll say, well, you know, we're getting a better deal here. And so I've had that happen. Uh, Costco used to take one type of credit card up until three or four years ago, and then they switched over. And so if you didn't have that credit card, you have to go sign up for that kind of credit card. Uh, it's on a specific uh, branded card. It's either a MasterCard, Visa, American Express. But what it really does tell you is that big companies like that have the power to negotiate those fees down because they have just such incredible volumes at their stores. And that's something that small businesses simply don't have. And if they've got, you know, 100 transactions every couple of days um, and each transaction they're paying 3%, that's really cutting into their profits. But before I let you go, the federal government has announced a new savings account for first-time homebuyers. Uh, you can put money into that account and you can withdraw it tax-free. So you don't have to pay any capital gains on the gains that you do make when that money is invested. And so that's going to help first-time home buyers afford their first home. But if you've done all that work and you've got the down payment, 
where are some places where you can get a lot of home for your money? Well, according to a survey that was done by Edmonton Homes, the most affordable place to buy a house in Canada right now is St. John's, Newfoundland. Second is Regina. And third is Saskatoon. And for your interest, right now, a single family home in St. John's in February 2023 sold for $324,000 on average. So you really do see your dollar go further if you just get out of the big cities, right? Get out of Toronto, get out of Vancouver, and you can afford a lot more house. It's not doable for everyone. Maybe your job keeps you in one place. Your family might keep you in another place. And so it's impossible to say, I'll just move to St. John's so I can get more house. We uh, really appreciate you tuning in today and listening to our conversations uh, with our expert guests. I hope you'll tune in again next week. Same time, same channel. Thank you to Bilal Masri, our technical producer. Thank you to you for listening. I'm Rabina Madhak, and this is For What It's Worth.